Hey guys, this is Pastor Kyle here alongside Pastor Bailey. Grateful that you guys have tuned in to our podcast. We trust that what you're about to hear will be beneficial for your day, and we're grateful that you've stopped by to hear what the Lord is doing in Milledgeville. These two hymns, so uh, as we know, we can just look around the room and tell this is a different type of week. We can look around the world, tell this is a different type of week with the fears and the anxieties of COVID-19, um, but what I wanted to lay before you, Bailey just said perfectly in our call to worship, um, I really think this is a blessing from the Lord. Uh, let me give some context there, is um, it, it makes us all the more joyful for being able to do what we're doing right now, to gather together, not to forsake this assembly, and, um, and realize that this is a gift given by the Lord. So sometimes... I think the gifts given by the Lord uh, sometimes come in ugly circumstances. It's an ugly circumstance and understandably why many of our brothers and sisters are fearful and we respect and honor them. But uh, as, as ugly as these wrappings of COVID-19 are, I think uh, we're going to see that this is going to turn out for the, the beautiful advancement of the gospel for us to see the joys of being able to gather and, and to be the hands and feet of Jesus. Um, and with that aim in mind, I, I want to deliver a message to us this morning from Judges 9, 1 through 21, entitled, Redemption Wrapped in God's Reproval. Redemption Wrapped in God's Reproval. It's an encouragement for us to embrace the gift of redemption, uh, that it only comes in the wrappings of reproval. You see that my hope this morning for us, as we get to gather this morning, is that the Spirit would... The Spirit would encourage us and encourage us to embrace God's reproval in our lives. So that way, redemption would be all the more sweeter to us. Redemption and reproval, these two things seem to be parallel thoughts. Uh, reproval, if you're not familiar with that word, means correction. It's, it's difficult for sometimes for us to think that uh, that God has got to correct us in order to redeem us. But if we were just to, even for a second, to remember how Christ saved us first came through his loving, gentle correction uh, as we were wandering away from him in our sins. And then he redeemed us. He, he plucked us up out of the depths and saved our souls. And that redemption is continuing even today as the Lord is continuing to sanctify you. So we've been studying through judges here for a while, and we will be in judges uh, continuously for a while, so I hope we, we get comfortable. We just finished off last week a six-week study of the story of Gideon, and we saw it's a close of a cycle of sin and salvation. Uh, we saw Gideon's failures last week as a reminder to us to remember that Jesus is king. Gideon denied the kingship, and we were called to remember that Jesus was king, lest we turn ourselves and look towards other people as king. So this week, the book of Judges turns our attention to Gideon's son, Abimelech. Uh, so if you have your Bibles there in Judges 9, uh, follow along with me. We'll be in verses 1 through 21 this morning. God's word says this, Now Abimelech, the son of Jeroboam, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, Say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you? that all 70 sons of Jeroboam rule over you, or that one rule over you. Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem. 
and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech. For they said, he is our brother. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Baal Barith, which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the son of Jeroboam, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jeroboam, was left, for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together, all Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. When it was told to Jotham, he went and stood up on top of Mount Gerzim and cried aloud and said to them, Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, Reign over us. But the olive trees said to them, Shall I leave my abundance by which God and men are honored and go hold sway over the trees? And the trees said to the fig tree, You come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go hold sway over the trees? And the trees said to the vine, You come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, Shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go hold sway over the trees? Then all the wine, then all the trees said to the bramble, You come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, If in good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out from the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Now therefore, if you have acted in good faith and integrity when you made Abimelech king, and if you have dealt well with Jeroboam and his house, and have done to him as his deeds deserved. For my father fought for you and risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian. And you have risen up against my father's house this day and have killed his sons, 70 men on one stone, and have made Abimelech, the son of his female servant, king over the leaders of Shechem, because he is your relative. If you have acted in good faith and integrity with Jeroboam and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Milo. And let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and from Bethmelo and devour Abimelech. And Jotham ran away and fled and went to Beir and lived there because of Abimelech, his brother. God, would you bless this time, making it fruitful? God, I, I pray that it would be encouraging yet convicting. Instructive, I'll be challenging, comforting, although revealing. Jesus, would you be glorified this morning? Would your saving work on the cross and your blood poured out for us be evident through even this text this morning? Holy Spirit, would you show us the beauty of the Son glorifying the Father and in seeing the Son glorified in in his beauty and his cross, even through this text this morning, would it give us a bigger picture of you, God the Father? Father, would you remove me from this this morning? My words, my wisdom, God, we need you. God, it's our prayer that you would show us how you reprove to redeem us this morning. Would you already be preparing our hearts for worship of you through the reading of your word? 
It's in your name we pray. Amen. So as we're diving into this text this morning, this is an Old Testament narrative. That was a large chunk of scripture, right? There's some, a little bit of something that we have to note if we get this right this morning, if we want to get this right this morning. Um, so when we're looking back at this Old Testament narrative, what we're seeing is uh, just a, a sad story. Right, we see Abimelech. He's going to his family. He's going and he's going to his relatives and saying, uh, "You should make me king." He goes and kills seventy of his brothers. These Shechemites are idolatrous worshippers. They take money to hire assassins. And then we see this kind of crazy parable, right? That we talk about these trees and these vines and brambles. There's all kinds of stuff going on in this text. So we need to make sure that we understand uh, this well. So I think we'll have this for you on the screen here. Uh, understanding what this meant to them and then there. So what we're going to see is them and then and us and now. Because them and then there, we see that God saved Gideon's son from death in order to reprove sinful Israelites. So God saved Jotham in order to reprove, to tell this parable of reproval in order to reprove sinful Israelites. What we will see this morning for us, though, is this is us and now. God has saved his son from death in order to reprove and redeem sinful children. He saved as he resurrected Jesus Christ. Uh, Why is this important? Because when you look back at the Old Testament, sometimes specifically even in just this chunk of text, you see no redemption. You only see reproval. You only see the wrath of God. But we have the beauty of looking back through the lens of the cross, and we get to see how Christ redeems us as his faithful church today. It's so important that we understand that lest we get caught in only the reproval and we miss out on the beauty of God's redemption this morning. So for us to to dissect this text, it's a lot going on. We're going to have three different headers uh, to really break this down so that way we can understand and apply it to our lives. So the first header, if you're taking notes here, that we're going to see is first that God reproves to redeem our hearts. That God reproves to redeem our hearts. We're going to see this in uh, verses 1 through 6 here. We see as we start out in verses 1 through 2, what we saw is that we get to meet Abimelech. Now, Abimelech, if you were to study his name, his name means my father, the king. My father, the king. How ironic is that, that even his name means my father, the king. But Gideon, if we remember back in Judges 8.23, he said, none of my sons are going to be king. I won't be king, nor will any of my sons. So we're introduced to this man, Abimelech, who just by merit of being given that name is a prideful man. You can imagine if you were to grow up and your name was king, what you would be thinking about yourself, that you are just this high and important person. Much less if you were the son of a great person, you're just naturally already going to be struggling with pride. But we see that this man's pride is only met and exceeded by his ambition to become king. You see, this is he goes to Shechem in verses 1 through 2, and then he goes to his mother's house, and he's basically campaigning. He's going and saying, I need to be king. But if we, if we notice in the text here, he does something that is uh, wrong. He does something that is untrue. He presents this false dichotomy. He says, do you want these 70 kings to rule over you, or do you want this one king to rule over you, me? Well, it's a false dichotomy because remember, Gideon said, none of my sons should rule. If we remember back to our sermon from last week, that the Lord himself alone is king. So he presents two options that are both sinful options. And what we get to see is that he kind of puts this uh, icing on the cake, a kind of like um, he's going to pad their egos by saying this at the tail end of verse 2. He says, he also reminds them by saying, I am bone, your bone and your flesh. Now, what is, what is Abimelech doing there? He's saying, hey, 
remember we're family, and it would be good to be kin to the king, wouldn't it? He's telling them that if you're my kin and I get to be king, things are going to go well for you. So we see that in verse 1 through 2, but one thing I want to direct our attention to this morning, the, the, the most important part of these verses in verses 1 through 6, we see here in verse 3. We see in verse 3, Samuel reproves the hearts of the Shechemites. Remember, Samuel's the author of Judges. He's reproving their hearts when he says, And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem. And their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He is our brother. We have to see this morning of how our hearts, too, parallel these of the Shechemites that our hearts tend to incline towards all of these other things that tend to be kings in our life. These inward uh, heart motives or inward desires that we have, we long for anything else at time to be king over our life. You can take a step back and just look at your life and, and realize that your heart does not incline towards righteousness. There's a reason why you must be reminded of the gospel day in and day out, because your heart, even a regenerated heart, even a new heart given by God still has this sinful nature. We see this all throughout Scripture, is that our hearts are always inclining towards poor decisions. It's like a child that if you were to give them the option between a chocolate cake and vegetables, that we, like that child, often choose the thing that seems to be the sweetness, the one that is going to give us the most savor in the moment, but later only yields sour results. We do the same thing with sin. The Shechemites did the same thing of choosing this king that was their brother that is only going to yield sourness later. We do the exact same thing in our choices that we seek to make anything else God or king besides God. You see that the human heart has this bent that we were talking about towards sinfulness. And we all know this, but catch this, that God reproves our heart to redeem our heart. He reproves it. He, he, in the moment of salvation and regeneration, were you not broken over your sin? You did not come in full just rejoicing to the throne of grace. You came because your hearts were pricked in understanding that you were sinful. You see that God gave us this new heart in regeneration, but this redemption carries along. That redemption is not just momentary, but in the rest of your life, this process of sanctification, becoming more and more like Jesus is also a grace of the Lord. Both of these are gifts. Regeneration and sanctification, remember, all of this process is a gift. But is not sanctification oftentimes wrapped in the ugliest of wrappings? Sanctification, you becoming more like Jesus, has it been an easy process for you? Absolutely not. Even times of what we're seeing across this nation right now, Even through this, God sovereignly foreordained this so that way his children would be transformed more and more into the image of him. It's a process, but it hurts, and it's tough. We see this in Scripture of the state of our heart, of why it needs reproval. Genesis 6-5 demonstrates this truth as this is just a few generations away from creation of mankind. We see this is already the inclination of man's heart. He says this, The Lord saw the wickedness of man, that it was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only on evil. That God saw our state of our heart, and in the Old Testament we know what happens, this reproval of the flood. But we get to see 
that reproval is not only uh, the only gift the Lord gives, but he reproves to redeem. We see in the Old Testament, looking back through the lens of the cross, that while the flood happened, while there was reproval, there was redemption, and that, that the fact that God gave Noah an ark to save some, to redeem some, and then we look back through, we see that Christ is that better ark that we hide ourselves in. You see, this is why King David, knowing this about the heart, says this in Psalm 51.10. He asked the Lord to create in me a clean heart, O God. He's asking the Lord to redeem his heart. But why is this happening? How can David utter these words? We remember this is a psalm of David of uh, a response to the prophet Nathan's reproval. When King David goes and takes Bathsheba as his wife and, and kills his servants, uh, his, uh, Bathsheba's husband, his servant, we see that the, Nathan, the prophet Nathan goes to him and he reproves him. He, he says, uh, what you have done is wicked in the sight of the Lord. And David writes this psalm as a response, knowing that the Lord will redeem him. So we see this morning that these kings of our hearts unfortunately incline us towards evil. And sometimes it's hard to identify these. So if you're sitting there this morning trying to identify what are these kings, the proverbial inward uh, heart desires that you have, it can be anything. It could be uh, a job. It could be a relationship, it could be a social status, it could be anything that you're wanting to put on the heart throne besides King Jesus. So, uh, I mean, really the possibilities are endless because we see in Romans 1.30 uh, that it says of our hearts that we're inventors of evil. We could put anything there. Maybe, uh, I think we'll have a couple of these questions here for you on the screen. The best way to identify your kings is to contrast them to your relationship with Jesus. So, do you value it more than you value Jesus? So, whatever this king is that you're wanting to put on your heart, the thing that you're putting more of your time and your energy towards, do you value it more? Do you, do you think about it more than Jesus? Do you spend more time with it than Jesus? Ultimately, is your heart inclined towards it more than Jesus? Friend, if you said yes to any of those questions there on the screen, likely you have some other king sitting on the throne of your heart. But there is good news. King Jesus redeems our heart. We see this in Titus 2.14. He, meaning Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Although your heart is often inclined towards lawlessness, Jesus redeemed you. As he died on the cross and he poured out his blood for you, his, his cross redeemed you. Your heart that was broken, as he sent his spirit to regenerate your heart, he gave you a new heart and redeemed your heart that was broken and inclined towards anything else besides himself. And now you have a new heart that is not unable to love God, but you have a new heart that is capable for what we just saw in Titus. You have a heart capable for, that is zealous for good works. We see that in Christ, in his betrayal, in his crucifixion, in his burial, in his resurrection, in his ascension, we see that as he sent the Spirit, what we've been alluding to this morning, it comes from the words of Ezekiel 36, 26. 
where the prophet Ezekiel says this as a prophecy about this salvation, about this redemption. He says, and this is him speaking of God here, he says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. You see that God didn't just come into your life just to reprove you, just to say that you are sinful. He didn't reprove you in order to make your bad heart good. He reproved you to give you a new heart and thus redeeming you. This is the moment of salvation for you. We as sons and daughters of God must sit under God's reproval because it is the process by which he is redeeming us. Reproval is not fun. Correction is not fun. It is never fun to sit under correction and be told that you are wrong. Our flesh rages against it, does it not? At any moment that someone were to tell you you're wrong, we even joke about this as we uh, half-heartedly laugh to one another and say, are you going to tell me I'm wrong? But the truth of the matter is, is that our hearts, when it comes to our Savior God, are wrong. But the beautiful part is that he has redeemed them and given them, given us a new heart. You see that God reproves our heart to redeem our heart. May we be reminded this morning of what our goal is, of what I said I hope that the Spirit does this morning as we read this. Oh, that the Spirit would encourage us to embrace God's reproval in our lives so that his redemption would be all the more sweeter. That you get to see that this redemption is not anything you deserved because your hearts were so far from him. And even as you're being reproved, maybe even daily, you get to see that as a sweet gift from the Lord that may come in a sour wrapping. But as we're continuing through the text this morning, let's see how the story continues. As we're summarizing what's happening here, we saw in verses 4 through 6, really this evidence of this rottenness of Abimelech and the wicked hearts of the Shechemites. You see, these Shechemites are uh, idol worshipers. What I mean by that, we saw that Baal Bereth was their god. Now, Baal means Lord in, in translating, and Bereth means of the covenant. So where does this come from, Baal, Bereth? If we were to take some time, you want to write a note down and go back and read later. In Joshua 24, 19 through 27, it's Joshua 24, 19 through 27 is where they get this name. In this moment, Joshua is making a covenant with the people of Shechem, and he is standing before them and saying that you should serve no one besides the Lord your God. I'm going to make a covenant with you that you would serve Yahweh only. And they break this covenant. And they are wrongfully proclaiming that the Lord of the covenant is not Yahweh, but Baal Barith. We see the sinfulness of these Shechemites here. In verses 4 through 5, we see that uh, Abimelech goes on to hire these mercenaries to kill his 70 brothers, but God graciously saves Jotham. And, and as Jotham is hiding, the Lord saves him. Uh, we, we get to see this about Abimelech. The author, Jared Wilson, accurately remarks about this pride-like of uh, Abimelech here that I think it would be important for us to notice. I think we'll have this quote here for you on the screen. It says that the root of pride, if unchecked, will grow into a murderous tree. The pride that Abimelech started with has grown into this murderous tree. And uh, for one second, don't feel like you could not be there. 
The pride in your heart may not lead you to physically murder, but as we remember the words of Christ on the Sermon of the Mount, that if you have anger in your heart towards a brother and sister, you are guilty of murder. Pride cannot go unchecked. You see that these executions of Abimelech were not only in the name of a false god, Abimelech, but they were used uh, to be carried out from the offerings given to Baal Barith. So the, the 70 pieces of silver were taken from this temple. So it's idle blood money that was going to be used to kill his brothers that was also done as an act of worship to Baal Barith. It was done on one stone, if we remember it says there in the text. And that is to allude to the fact that they weren't only just killing his brothers, but they were killing him as an act of worship. We see that these hearts of the Shechemites are truly unworthy of any type of redemption at all. But remember, our hearts, too, were in the same place before God redeemed us. Now, in verse 6, if you were to turn your attention there, uh, once this heinous act is complete, Abimelech is made king by the pillar at Shechem. What do we know about the pillar of Shechem? Again, in Joshua 24, verse 26, when they made this covenant that they would serve the Lord their God only, that there was a stone standing there, this large stone, and then uh, Joshua turns and says, this stone heard everything you're saying, as if the this, this stone were to have ears, but he's saying it's going to be a witness against you. So this stone is going to be standing here. No one's going to remove it. For generations, we will walk by and look at this stone and remember that the Lord is the covenant, that you're going to serve him only. And we see the depravity continue on and on and on of the Shechemites. Not only did they forsake that Lord of the covenant, but when they go and make someone else king besides King Jesus, they do so at the very place that was supposed to be a monument to God's faithfulness, to a covenant relationship with God. They take something that is holy and use it for a heinous act of idolatry. This is what we see of these people. They are truly in need of reproval. We can see that as I would just, to walk us through that text, but one thing I want to turn your attention towards is if someone were to write a narrative of your life in summary form, would you see the same markers in your life? Of course you would. But remember that reproval is to lead us towards redemption. When the Lord points out these things in the Old Testament, Redemption was on the horizon, had not yet come. But when the Lord or a brother and sister in Christ reproves you, it is for your own good. Just do me a favor. If this is a hard text for you, if this is something that has been difficult for you to hear, and all you're hearing is heaviness, if all you're hearing this morning is this feels all heavy, and where is the grace of Christ in this? Do me a favor, read Proverbs, and highlight, underline, circle every time that the father is talking to the son about reproof. In all of his remarks this week, uh, I was reading throughout Proverbs, it says the wise son's heeds reproof. It's a life-giving thing. That reproval is not something that we are to turn away towards and turn away from and only want to hear good things. But scripture would say we're to turn towards it and to lean into it and to be molded and shaped by it. You see, if I'm being gut-level honest with you, this was a very difficult bit of scripture for me as your pastor to prepare to give because I'm not wanting any of you to feel crushed this morning. Many of you guys already know the weight of your own sin, so I'm not needing to give a sermon to tell you that. But one thing I would hope that you hear from me 
is that this reproval is to lead to redemption, that as you hear that you need reproval, you also see that Christ has redeemed you and that you're to lean into it because he loves you. Perhaps this would be helpful. If there was someone standing in the street that I'm looking at right now, if there's someone standing there and we see a car car barreling down the road, what would be the most loving thing we could do? Is it to say, if I yell at them, it might hurt their feelings. If I say this in a harsh tone, they may feel like I'm an angry person. What is the most loving thing we can do? The most loving thing we could do is to warn them of the trouble that is coming. And God, through his scriptures, loves us enough to reprove us and to warn us of the path that we're on. But his love is even deeper than that because his love has carried him not only into reproval but into redemption in the fact that you would stand in that street because you had a heart of stone. It doesn't matter what he would say. He took out your heart of stone and gave you a heart of flesh and even didn't do that just to make you save yourself and to pull yourself out of all these sins. What God did is he, stu- he pulled you out of that road. And he stood in the road and took the punishment of the sin coming toward you that was due you. He was broken for his children. His blood was poured out for his children in the greatest act of love ever. Because God loves you, he didn't just redeem you to allow you to do whatever you want, but just as the nation of Israel was given these laws of approval of do this, don't do this, thou shalt, thou shalt not. God did that to make for himself a people unique and distinct that was set apart from the rest of the world. And that's what God is doing in your life. He's setting you apart and trying to make you unique and distinct from the rest of the world. So that way, your life will be a life of worship to glorify him as your father. Do not run from his reproval. Sit in it and realize it's the gracious gift from your father this morning. So if this first section we saw here is that God ultimately reproves to redeem our hearts, what's the next thing we're going to see? We'll have it here for you on the screen. This next header, God reproves to redeem not only our hearts, but also our desires. You see, our hearts are inclined towards sinfulness, and that flows into our desires And our desires then stem from our our heart that is in need of redemption. But God is gracious enough to redeem our desires as well. We'll see this in verses 7 through 15. As we see, starting in verse 7 there, if you turn your attention, we see that God has saved Jothan in order that he may deliver this parable. That he can deliver this parable of reproval, ultimately what's going on here. Uh, It's interesting to note too that Jothan goes up on Mount Gerzim. If you did a little bit of study there, you know that Mount Gerzim is known as the mountain of blessing. Why is this known as the mountain of blessing? Deuteronomy eleven twenty nine, we see this. That is, the nation of Israel goes in the promised land for the first time. If you look at that study guide that I sent out this week, the in-depth one, there's a map, and you get to see right outside of Shechem, there's two mountains. Imagine where I'm standing here is Shechem, and on the right is Mount Gerzim, and the left is Mount Ebal. When the nation of Israel came into the promised land, they read out the covenant of the law, And they went up on Mount Gerzim and read the blessings. If Israel were to keep the law, the Lord will bless them coming in and bless them going out. They also went up on Mount Ebal and read out the curses of the law. If you do not keep this law, you will be cursed going in and cursed going out. Notice the irony that is happening here. Jotham is going up on the Mount of Blessing proclaiming a curse. 
of approval to this nation of Israel because they have rejected God as king. They have broken the covenant at the very altar where they promised under the, the tree, the terebinth tree, where they promised Joshua they would abide by the covenant. They made someone else king. It's a sad irony that we see here. But in verses 8 through 15, you see this parable. And it's, a, it's such a beautiful parable that uh, looking back on it, I can't imagine Samuel uh, reading back and understanding what was going on there and seeing like this young son of Gideon was so wise. And I think even here in this parable, we can see a shadow of Christ as our Savior came, he taught in parables as well, and many parables of reproval. But let's try to understand this parable, what's going on here. Let's give some context around what's happening here. We see in verse 8, uh, this parable is about Israel's desire for a king. You see that it's about cedar trees, the Israelites, that they're seeking to anoint a king over them. We saw that in verse 8. They're seeking to anoint a king. So what do they do? If they're seeking to anoint a king, uh, they call on other. Notice these are all fruit-bearing trees, that there's a fig tree, that there is a vine that would produce, uh, and there's an olive tree that would produce fruit. So they ask those to reign over them. So let's break it down. The cedars ask in verse 8 through 9, an olive tree. Verses 10 through 11, they ask a fig tree. In verses 12 through 13, they ask a vine. Now, all of these fruit-bearing trees are symbolic of other kings. Uh, these are inward desires we're going to see of the hearts of the Shechemites. They're not actually physical kings, but they're desires of the heart of the Shechemites. But when all of these fruit-bearing trees decline for various reasons, we see in verse 14 that they ask a bramble. It's a thorn. It's a thistle. So they turn away from fruit-bearing trees, these inward desires that they have, of things that they think could be good. And even in their wickedness, they turn to a thorn that they know is only going to cause them pain. This thorn is symbolic of Abimelech. So we see that, again, these trees, it's Israel, it's the Shechemites asking other fruit-bearing trees, it's desires of their heart to be king, and when they decline, then we see that the thorn, Abimelech, they turn to him. So as we're thinking about this thorn, I can't help but think about Genesis 3.18. If we remember when the curse was doled out on the world, that the curse was not only over man and woman, but also of all of creation. We see in Genesis 3.18 the curse was on plants and that they would now bring forth thorns and thistles. And this is exactly what we're seeing that's going on here. Samuel is saying that Abimelech is going to be a thorn and a thistle. He is going to be a curse to the Shechemites. In the same way in our life, as we already talked about our heart, if we have anything else on the throne of our heart, it will be a thorn and a thistle. If you have any other desire in your life, save for Christ, he will reprove it to redeem it because that thorn and thistle will only be of pain in your life. The only thing that can bring true joy is Christ. We see that this is exactly why we see that Abimelech here is foreshadowing. We're going to see in the rest of the story of Abimelech that he does become this thorn to the Shechemites. That's why in verse 15, Jotham proclaims, let fire come out from the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon, that's Israelites, the cedar trees. The fire is symbolic of judgment, and we'll see that. But how do we apply this to our life? We just heard this parable, trying to understand all these trees. Some of you guys may still be waking up and understanding what is happening here. Let's, let's dive into this and try to understand what the Lord is teaching us this morning. So like we said, each one of these 
different fruit-bearing trees symbolize inward desires of our heart. Uh, I believe we'll have this here for you on the screen. Yep. Verse 9, the olive tree's abundance, we see in verse 9, he says, shall I leave my abundance. What does that symbolize? It represents our desire for materialism. It's the same thing of the Shechemite's desire for materialism, that, that uh, objects can make a better king than King Jesus. We see in verse 11 that they, were, they go and ask the fig trees, and the fig trees' response, shall I leave my sweetness? The sweetness represents our desire for comfort. It's just like the desire of the Shechemites. They had this desire for comfort rather than a king. In verse 13, we see the vine when it says, shall I leave my wine that cheers both God and man? It represents our desire for happiness. It represents our ha- desire for happiness. And all this, we're assuming that these other trees can bring true abundance, true sweetness, true wine that cheers, and we miss out that each one of those cannot bring those things in our lives. Only King Jesus can. He's the only one that can provide abundance. He's the only one that can provide sweetness. He's the only one that can provide happiness in your life. That's why when we look back on this text, we see that all of these are only found in Christ. So what is a good litmus test this morning to see if you have another desire rather than God on your heart? Let's take each one of these one by one. Is your king a desire for materialism? I ask that as we ask these questions that you would be honest with yourself and that the Spirit would allow you to see this this morning. Do you buy things to shape others' perception of you? Is that something that you do? It's a desire for materialism. Maybe this, how would you respond if you lost everything you own? I feel like in in this climate that we're in right now, this is, uh, yes, a response to a virus going on, but also a clamor for mine, mine, not I can share and I can be a loving neighbor. So this is a, these type of questions we're asking about other people. This was what was most helpful for me this week, of identifying if I'm struggling with these. Do the other do others often feel like they don't measure up to you? If you've ever asked someone or felt like other people feel less than you, that could be a good sign that you have desire for materialism because you're constantly having to show people just how much better you are than them through your materials of a car or social media posts or uh, whatever you have. And perhaps a, a, one to strike at your heart this morning, a question to ask yourself is, is your problem emotion comparison? Are you constantly comparing yourself to someone else and what they have, what vacation they're going on? We joke about it, we call it hate liking someone's stuff on Instagram. It could be a sign that you have this desire for materialism reigning as king in your life rather than King Jesus. Perhaps it's not materialism for you. That is what we saw on the olive tree. Perhaps like the Shechemites, you have uh, a desire for comfort. We see this in the fig tree. Perhaps you can ask yourself these questions. Is your life characterized by apathy and procrastination? Is it characterized by apathy and procrastination? Are you constantly just feeling like life is just coming at you and you just kind of respond? You're always behind. 
perhaps it was because you were being, putting your comfort over those things. How do you spend, how do you respond to unforeseen stresses and demands? How, how have we responded to COVID-19? Unforeseen stresses and demands. Perhaps it's a desire for comfort. When the call of the Christian life is, if you want to find your life, you will lose it. Do others often feel hurt by you because of your laziness that has collateral damage? Are the relationships that you have around you, people hurt by you often? Is your, um, is your problem emotion boredom? You're just bored. Again, let's remind ourselves that these reprovals are not easy to hear, but they're necessary. Last one here that we get to see is about this vine. Is your king a desire for happiness? Do you find yourself wanting someone else's life? Are you not content and happy with the life that you have that the Lord has given you graciously? Do you get down at even the smallest of life's difficulties? Are things that happen in your life just seemingly able to rob you of any level of happiness you have, even of the smallest of things? Do others often feel drained by you because of your melancholiness? Are the relationships and people around you or people feeling down and discouraged because you can't have happiness that somewhat in your heart, if you can't, others around you can't either? And is your problem emotion discontentment? So, if you said yes to any of those questions, and we could go on forever and pull out different desires because those desires, like we said, of our heart can be anything. We're inventors of evil. We want to place anything there. But if you said yes to any of those, remember this morning that Jesus is reproving even your desires to redeem those desires. As the Shechemites wanted all of these things, there's nothing wrong with wanting comfort. There's nothing wrong with wanting to have abundance. There's nothing wrong uh, in of itself of wanting to have happiness. But if you are looking for the gift of comfort, happiness, abundance, rather than the giver of the gift, your heart does need to be reproved and be reminded that God has redeemed your heart in order to uh, make all of your desires for those things be found in Christ. Happiness in Christ. Comfort in in Christ, your abundance in his love and the riches that he has given to you in Christ. Where do we see this in scripture? Remember, if we were to just stop in our story this morning, we would stop only in the reproval, but let's look back through the lens of history that our hearts can see this redemption and be encouraged this morning. King Jesus redeems our desires. We see this in Galatians 5.16. Paul says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. When Jesus redeemed our souls, the Spirit regenerated our hearts. And in that moment, we be he began redeeming our heart that we can pursue after right desires. The desires given by the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. You see that our flesh no longer reigns over us, but King Jesus does. If you said yes to any of those tough questions earlier and you are feeling just broken and crushed, if you are in Christ, you are bruised but not defeated, you are crushed but not vanquished, that Christ lives and reigns in you and has given you his spirit so that way all those desires will find their sweetness, will find the abundance, will find the joy in your Savior. 
If you're feeling crushed, if you're feeling broken, remember that you are looking at yourself in this moment. All those questions that I wrote designed to make you realize and to look at yourself this morning. But if you stop only by looking at yourself, you will leave here this morning crushed. You must lift your eyes to the cross. And you can see where your heart and your desire find their ultimate satisfaction in King Jesus as he redeems. May we be convicted of this as we see our other kings and our desires for materialism, comfort, and happiness. But may we be all the more encouraged as we see our redeeming king shine through the text. Where is Jesus in this story? Where is Jesus in this parable? How do we see him alluded to? Let's look at these trees, these fruit-bearing trees of this parable that the Shechemites wanted because these are the things that we want. Let's see how Jesus meets those desires for us, where we want the olive tree to, to satisfy our desire for abundance. Jesus, yes, reproves our desires, for he has already provided life and life abundantly. We read that in John 10.10. 10. When he ascended from the Mount of Olives, we want an olive tree that can only provide temporary love and temporary abundance, that Jesus brought life and life abundantly when he defeated the grave. And when he ascended from that Mount of Olives, everything in your life of the abundance that you're searching for, you find its fulfillment in the better olive tree, Jesus. What about this fig tree, where we want the fig tree to satisfy our desires for comfort, Jesus curses a fig tree as he walked the earth that bears no fruit and therefore has no true comfort. Jesus walked the earth and there was this fig tree that was a blooming and it looked like it would have had ripe fruit on it. It was symbolic of us as people that we put out this outward perception that we actually are going to be bearing fruit, but we actually have no fruit. And Jesus curses that as he reminds us that this pretense that we walk in sometimes needs reproval. He curses this tree. But this reproval is not where Jesus stops. Jesus reproves our desires as the better fig tree. What do we mean by that? He, Jesus, as he taught in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. The very thing that you're looking for in these other fig trees, these other desires of your heart, you're looking to be comforted by relationship. You're looking to be comforted by material. You're looking to be comforted in so many other ways, and you forget that your Jesus, your King, has said as the better fig tree, blessed are you when you mourn, for you will be comforted, because you're going to be comforted not by temporary things, but an eternal thing, Jesus Christ himself. We see this vine tree where we want the vine to satisfy our desire for happiness. Jesus reproves us in that thought and proclaims, I am the true vine. We see this in John 15. He says, I am the true vine. If we're looking for any other vine besides King Jesus, we will be let down. But he doesn't also just say that, remember this vine was to bring cheer and happiness. Jesus doesn't just reprove and say, I'm the true vine but it's for redemption. Jesus says in, in John 15, just a few verses later, in verse 10, he says that, I spoke in these things that your joy may be full. 
You see, oftentimes we're looking for happiness, and happiness can be fleeting. But Jesus himself doesn't only just bring happiness, but brings joy, and that it may be full joy. I pray that the Spirit would encourage us to embrace God's reproval in our lives so that his redemption would be all the more sweeter, that we wouldn't look to these other trees, that we would look to the one tree where your Savior's hands were spread out for you. So we said that this section was going to be, or this sermon rather, is going to be divided in three sections. So verses 16 through 21 um, I think what we can pull from that is our response. So how do we respond to all of this? In these closing verses, we see that Jotham's curse on Abimelech and the Shechemites uh, was valid because they had not treated Gideon faithfully. We see in verses 16 through 19, if you have acted in good faith and integrity when you made Abimelech king, then rejoice. They have not acted faithfully, therefore they have no reason to rejoice. It says in verses 20 through 21, then let fire come out and consume each other. This is that judgment that we're talking about. What is our response? How do we pull our response out of this? We're like the Shechemites there. We have not, as we have approached our King Jesus, not dealt in good faith and integrity with Jesus. But praise God that he is not looking at us and seeing how we respond in order to save us He does it while we're yet sinners. But even in our life today, when we don't act faithfully, God is still faithful. So what are are we asking this morning? We're asking that as we look at this reproval, we see redemption. May we fall on our knees in proper conviction over the reproval of our sin, and by God's grace seek no other king besides Jesus. And may we stand to our feet encouraged that Jesus continually loves and has reproved us to redeem us. That's our call this morning. To sit under proper biblical conviction, but perhaps this is not a a morning where you're going to come in and sing a great song, and I know... um, just from maybe the weariness and the heaviness of the week, that this text can seem like a a heavier text, but I think God, in his sovereignty, has allowed us to see this in a time where perhaps you have a lot more time to think this week, a lot more time to pray, a lot more time to search his scriptures, a lot more time, a lot of time to journal, that this is a call for us to be uh, not introspective to the point of Uh, brokenness and melancholy, but proper biblical introspection so that way we can see the sweetness of God's redemption. We can see that although we do deserve his reproval, that he is redeemed. So I pray that some of those questions that we asked this morning, I know we kind of went through them rapid fire, that we would sit under those. And perhaps something that would be beneficial for you is every time you answer one of those questions in the affirmative, yes, that's a desire, that's an other king, yes, my heart is wicked, that you would search God's scripture this week and you would find truth of where your sin was met with God's grace. I don't have enough time this morning to apply the goodness of the gospel to every one of your heart situations, 
My goal this morning was for us to sit under proper biblical conviction and for you to have time this week to be encouraged in the gospel. It's my job to to lovingly warn us as a flock of God that sin does have consequences. But our Savior loves and is even using the sin in your life right now to further redeem you and shape you into the image of his son. You guys, take that challenge this week. And any notes that you've taken, or if you want to go back and listen on podcasts, or if you want my sermon notes here, I think a lot of this is in those outline guides, I would challenge you to do that and to meet every one of those moments where your sin and your flesh and Satan wants to condemn you with the good news and the hope and the gospel. Bailey and I love you guys and we're thankful that we're able to pastor and shepherd you guys and that we can gather here and hear even a message of reproval is better than no message at all. Father, we love you. We thank you. We're thankful for a word that's even a tough word because any word from our king is for our good and for your glory. So I pray that your spirit would encourage us this week that we wouldn't just sit under conviction of reproval, but we would see this redemption in our own life. Some of these desires are deep-seated in our heart and have been plaguing us for months, if not years. God, one sermon is not adequate enough to apply the goodness of your message of the gospel. I pray this week, Holy Spirit, as we go out as the church, that you would show us the goodness that is to be found, that even though our hearts are sinful, even still regenerate hearts, that you graciously love us. Father, we thank you for your cross and your redemption. God, would we be brought properly low so that way we can see the beauty of how far you have raised us as your children to be seated with you in the heavenly places. Would we see the perils of our sin as a warning from Scripture this morning that if perhaps we've been walking in them for so long that this would be a gentle reminder that there is a way that seems right to man but in the end leads to death. But be all the more encouraged that that death was the death of your son, Jesus Christ, paid for our sins. Father, we love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. So if you'd like to stand with us as the worship team comes forward and is going to grab that. want us to be able to enter into worship of our God with a proper perspective of our approval and of his love. So if you are there in Hebrews chapter 12, if you'll read with me, starting in verse 6, this is an exhortation, rather verse 5, an exhortation the Lord gives us as his children. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, 
nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? would go on to say that if he does not discipline, that we are illegitimate children. We get to see the beauty of God's reprovals to lead us to redemption. He reproved to redeem us and make us sons and daughters, and at that, legitimate sons and daughters. Do not grow weary under this reproval, but rightfully worship your king. Sing along with us, church. <laughs>